Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and we are continuing our Michael Crichton-themed month by talking about Twister this week. Twister is unique amongst all the topics that we're talking about this month because it's a film written by Michael Crichton, but not just Michael Crichton. It's written by Michael Crichton and his wife at the time, Anne-Marie Martin. So they co-wrote the film, and this film actually has a lot of names backing it. <laughs> so you have Jan DeBont, which I believe directed Speed. Then you have the producers, Ian Bruce, uh, Michael Crichton, of course, and Kathleen Kennedy. Then it's, of course, starring Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton. Uh, it has Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. Then there's also the support of uh, Steven Spielberg, as I believe his company Amblin helped kind of you know, produce the film. So it, it's a, it's relatively has a lot of names backing it. For what ends up being, story-wise, a very simple film, but effects-wise, decently big. So story-wise, it is a very simple film, as I said, and it basically just follows a guy named Bill, funnily enough, played by Bill Paxton, who just wants to divorce his wife. He wants to get married to his current fiance. And so him and his fiance take a trip down to where his ex-wife is to get her to sign the papers. He has become a weatherman, but in his past, he was a storm chaser. And his ex-wife is also a storm chaser. So he finds them and tries to serve for the papers, but instead they end up getting caught up in this, you know, chase. A series of storms that just keep kind of coming up and interrupting them. You know, they, they rush off to follow these storms and what they're trying to do the overall goal is to release a device that they nicknamed dorothy this device is like it, it kind of looks like a big old trash can and inside this trash can is a bunch of little sensors and the idea is to get this trash can put it in the path of a tornado and let the tornado you know suck up all these sensors and then you'll get real-time data on the strength and intensity of the tornado throughout the duration of its you know rage i guess and so they have a few of these devices but then they also come across their rivals who have pretty much made a knockoff version of the dorothy and are also trying to do well essentially the same thing Supposedly, this film takes place over the course of about 24 hours, but there's like a ton of tornadoes that end up happening in in that time. I don't know how accurate that is to to the area. Supposedly, Oklahoma is part of Tornado Alley. I, I don't know how many tornadoes uh, that area can get at a time. This seems like a lot <laughs> for one place. This is kind of the basics of the story, really. It's it's just kind of that. They, they encounter... F a few tornadoes take a break encounter some more tornadoes repair their vehicles encounter another tornado and then they encounter the big bad tornado in f5 they're able to get the Dor dorothy 4 to deploy and then are chased by the tornado and that's another small thing is the tornadoes seem to have like some minor personalities in in this film as weird as that might sound, because one, uh, the the main, well, the main character's ex-wife Joe, she she has like a weird vendetta against tornadoes, because 
one killed her father uh, and destroyed her family farm. So there's that. So she's she's kind of on a, I guess you'd call it a, what's the a Moby Dick esque story, where she's chasing them down to try and you know get it locked down and whatnot to to better understand these things. But then you have the quirky ones where, you know, they suck up water so they become water tornadoes or they pick up a cow, that kind of fun thing. But the last one is kind of shown as being almost targeting them. <laughs> like, it changes direction, destroys uh, the rival, like killing the rival, and then it, like, shifts course again to chase uh, Bill and Joe after they get Dorothy 4 uh, to deploy by sacrificing his truck and they they run to they run to a house and they tie themselves to a pole in a barn the barn gets destroyed uh, but the house survives and he he makes it a really dumb statement like oh you know it spared the house but the only reason that it spared the house supposedly because i did some i did some minor research for this film the only reason it spared the house is because the Oklahoma Historical Society uh, didn't let them des uh, destroy the house. So now that house has become a tourist site and the barn is supposedly still um, still destroyed the way it was in the film, I guess. Which I find kind of fun. Uh, as for like the, the divorce subplot, I guess you could call it. Basically, the tension between him and his fiance keep rising because she's seeing just how much chemistry him and his ex-wife have. And so, eventually, uh, she just kind of relents and lets the relationship die. Uh, and, you know, encourages him to go back to his ex-wife. I don't think it really explains much about why they divorced. I think it's because... I think he wanted to switch away and also her obsession, you know, similar to Moby Dick's situation, uh, kind of drove a wedge in their relationship, causing some issues. And overall, so the, the film is fine. It has a lot of waves, I guess you can call it, where you'll have this, like, period of intense storm chaser action and then nothing. Like, they'll, they'll be hanging out in a diner for a bit. But then intense storm chaser action, and then nothing. You know, it, it's um, it, it's a it's a little bit hit and miss. I used to love uh, watching this movie. We have it on VHS. I don't think we ever got it on DVD. Uh, and I, I would watch it to bits. Um, it, it was one of the things I would throw into rotation. And funnily enough, at the time, I didn't know that it was written by Michael Crichton. So I didn't actually know that this film was written by Michael Crichton until like a couple of years ago. When I was just looking through Michael Crichton's work, seeing, you know, what he has done besides, you know, writing. Because he, he actually has a very varied writing career and history. So he started off in, like, medical school. And while he was in medical school, he started writing kind of cheesy, um, kind of airport books, I guess you would call them. They're like these cheap thriller novels, like uh, crime thrillers. They are currently published under the Hard Case Crime uh, publication, which tackles a bunch of old, like, uh, 
crime novels and whatnot. And they have like silly titles like Zero Cool and whatnot. And <laughs> the, he he wrote them under a pen name because he 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 was in medical school and he didn't really want people to know he was writing those. Uh, they weren't exactly a work for him to be proud of. They were just something for him to earn some money. And I'm kind of impressed, actually, because to, to be able to just kind of decide one day, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to just write some books to make some cash <laughs> is kind of impressive. While in medical school as well, funnily enough, uh, then shortly after that, he also started just writing normal books like Andromeda Strain um, as well as a few others, those he would write under his actual name. Then he would try his hand at directing, uh, with, uh, the great, the great train robbery and Westworld, which he would then, I believe also adapt into novels. And then he would write more novels. Then he also created the TV show ER. So, you know, he had a, a very varied life and career. He, I believe he described once that he just liked, he couldn't pin himself down to one thing. You know, when he got bored of something, he would move on to something else. Which, you know, is kind of a fun tale. Uh, he also had a long string of marriages. I'm not going to list them all off, but his longest marriage was to Anne-Marie Martin. And with Anne-Marie Martin, he wrote Twister. Now, like I said, I didn't know that he wrote Twister when I watched it as a kid. As a kid, I just watched it because the tornadoes look cool. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. Uh, and the special effects in this film are actually quite good. Especially like the, well, the tornadoes. But of course, all of the kind of practical effects that they tend to use as well for like the kind of close up uh, disaster shots are also really good. The acting can be a little bit stiff at times and some of the story elements are a bit meh, but overall it did decently well. And funnily enough, it's getting a sequel. Uh, it won't have the same people in it, probably. Except for maybe Helen Hunt. But it can't have Bill Paxton because Bill Paxton died. And it can't have Philip Seymour Hoffman because Philip Seymour Hoffman died. So, yeah, We'll see how the sequel goes. Funnily enough, the sequel's going to be called uh, Twisters. Yeah, it, it looks to be kind of like a whole new cast. Because supposedly it does have a cast. It's described as a new chapter... The film scheduled to release internationally in 2024. Now, that's, of course, questionable uh, at the moment. We'll have to see. Because, of course, currently there is the the writer strike. But the it was announced all the way back in 2020. They retitled it uh, in 2022. So we'll, we'll see. It's, it's another legacy sequel from the looks of it, though. It'll be following Bill Paxton's kid and whatnot. So, we'll see. I mean, to be honest, there's not a whole lot needed necessarily to make it 
at least on par with the original. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a, a fairly short episode this week because again, it's a, it's a very simple film. When I first picked it, I kind of picked it out of um, just kind of a spur of the moment kind of thing. And as I sat with it longer, I realized, oh, maybe I should have should have done something else. Like I was one of the things I was originally thinking of was um, timeline, which is which also has like a whole thing to do with it. But that one needs its own episode with the book version of it because there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. And I want to give it kind of it's it's a, a whole thing with the book, and I can't read the book right now. The only reason uh, next week's episode Sphere uh, is happening is because it just so happened to line up perfectly with the fact that I had randomly chosen Sphere as one of the uh, breather books in the challenge, and also that uh, and also that it had a movie adaptation, so it, it kind of just worked out nicely at that point so choosing twister was a bit of a like a i i i liked that movie <laughs> kind of thing it is cool it has a lot of neat ideas but it uh it's kind of a meh movie overall is it what, what is it i guess you just it's forgettable it's a good movie like it's a good movie that you can sit down and just watch for a i think it's like almost two hours but it's kind of forgettable. You'll probably forget most of what happened by the end of the day <laughs> that you watch it. It won't leave much of an impact on you. And that's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I do recommend watching it because it is... Again, it's a good movie to just kind of sit and turn your brain off and watch. While it might not have a super lasting impact, it is at least interesting. And if you're a big fan of Michael Crichton... It's a bit of Michael Crichton history, because he wrote it, well, co-wrote it. Uh, but yeah, so with that, I also wanted to keep this week's episode short, because the challenge update is going to be a lot more substantial. So I'm going to be talking about not only the Blood of Olympus, but the entirety of the Heroes of Olympus, and kind of how it kind of interconnects with the Percy Jackson and Olympian series, as well as just kind of how the challenge is going overall. So it's going to be kind of a big semi-retrospective thing kind of like what i did when i finished um the last olympian but i'm gonna do it do it from here on uh but yeah so with that actually let us go ahead and get into the challenge update which i'm gonna just uh be i'm, I'm recording it with the main part of the episode because um part of the reason i wanted to specifically do the challenge update as this whole chunk is because i want to separate sphere off and have it fully into next week's uh, episode. So I had to you know, do, do that kind of <laughs> separating. But with that, let's go ahead and talk about The Blood of Olympus. I hate the first half of the book, to, to be honest. Overall, the book is fine. When I was reading it, I just couldn't quite get into the first half. The only part I l genuinely liked pretty much from beginning to end was the story of Nico and Reyna taking the... Athena Parthenos to Camp Half-Blood. That's the only part of the story I liked from beginning to end. Uh, I had some minor issues with it, but it, it overall was good. But following the crew of the Argo eh, wasn't great. 
only as it was starting to ramp up towards the finale did it actually start to feel better and that's because it was kind of starting to rush through the rest of the rest of it and also there was the whole um leo pretty much deciding to seal his own fate uh he he pretty much early on after they capture nike or nike depending on how you are supposed to pronounce her name after they catch her Leo starts talking with her. We don't see this scene, but uh, he says that he's been talking with her. And then he go. He develops a bit of a plan. A plan that he's been kind of working on generally to begin with from the beginning anyway. Uh, but then he talks to Apollo. And with his talk with Apollo, it is sealed that he needs to sacrifice himself. He needs to be the one to take down Gaia. He needs to be the one to die, essentially. <laughs> Because the prophecy states that someone has to die and it's likely to be, it says to storm or fire, the world must fall, oath to keep with your final breath, etc. He notices something because when um, Percy, Hazel, Frank, and Leo go to capture Nike, or Nike, I, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce her name, uh, <laughs> but when they go to capture her, uh, they they come across an issue because she pretty much states that one of the four there is going to die. And the only person that overlaps with the prophecy and what Nike was telling them. I'm just going to go with Nike. The only one that overlaps is Leo. So he accepts the fact that he's the one that's going to die. He straight up steals the cure. Because most of their mission during the book is to create the physician's cure. To stop one of them from dying. It's kind of like uh, Percy's side quest in the final book of the Percy Jackson Olympian series where he has to get dipped in the uh, river sticks, Except for this one's a bit more boring. I, that's just generally how I feel about this as a finale overall. I feel it's supposed to be the culmination of ten books. It's technically supposed to feel like a bigger finale than the previous finale, but it doesn't. One, the House of Hades pretty much undoes the progress made in the previous, well, including House of Hades, except for at the very end, the previous four books. Yeah, they made it to Greece and Rome, but literally all of the giants that they killed previously are still alive. Um, and the, the overall finale of this book, when they're fighting the giants again, is over in, like, a chapter. Like, <laughs> the battle is super fast. Once the gods join the fight, it, they just melt them. And when Gaia rises, because... And that, that's something that's a bit of a disjoint. It keeps jumping back and forth. So it, you follow... Like, the, the pattern in this section, it goes Nico, Jason, Nico. And with Nico, it's following him going and preparing to sabotage the, the um, war machines that Octavian has ordered. So he's going to sabotage them and whatnot. Then we cut back to uh, Jason. And then, you know, there's the fight and battle there. Then we cut back to Nico as Nico goes and pretty much lets Octavian kill himself. And then we just wrap the story up on Nico. It it just doesn't feel very satisfying. You know, it, it feels... It, it's weird. Because usually a finale book is at least on par lengthwise 
to the other books in the series. If not, it becomes the longest book in the series because it's all about wrapping up the plot threads, you know? All of the plot threads that you've been dragging along this entire time, we, we, we tie up those loose ends. This one, since technically there aren't that many loose ends, ends up being the shortest book in these, um, in these five books. And it, you feel it, you know? As you're going through, you feel like some of the character interactions are a bit, you know, stiff and awkward. And it just doesn't feel satisfying. I kind of wish that they had given more... I feel like they could have given more time to actually go all in on the scenarios that they were proposing. They were pretty much proposing a ton of different things that would have been interesting if they had actually lent into them more. For example, the Leo-Hazel-Frank love triangle that doesn't even bother actually being a proper love triangle doesn't have any satisfaction when the love triangle is over because there was barely any actual conflict that came out of it. Same with the Percy-Jason rivalry. Like, it could have been a thing, them kind of butting heads the entire time, or... But no. No, they, they don't argue. They don't... They just kind of go, yeah, I understand. And while that is, in one hand, very refreshing, because you, you're not dealing with the issue of them constantly butting heads, and, you know, it's a simple thing as them having a conversation kind of thing, but regardless, most of the issues were solved with con a single conversation. It... I don't know. While this series of books have some of my favorite moments, because overall, since Rick Rorden does understand that his audience is growing up with these books, he decides to make this set of books a lot more mature in some of the themes that it explores, as well as um, ramping up the violence. Because there's a... Especially in this last book, there's a lot of, like, maiming and decapitation <laughs> and whatnot. And, you know, I give it a thumbs up for that. One thing that really annoyed me about Blood of Olympus, though, besides, in general, the first half is Jason spends the first half having been skewered. The motherfucker got stabbed through and survives. And literally, the the reason that they give, the, the thing that they said would be his cure, the thing that makes it to where he actually is able to survive, is that he just thunk real hard. He had to will himself better. Which kind of works, but kind of doesn't. I understand if it was a situation where, like, he got a really bad, like, cut or something. That I would be fine with. Like, say he had, like, a big gash across his chest or his back or something. Um, because the idea is supposed to be that Imperial Gold is, is complicated because the way that they first describe both Celestial Bronze and Imperial Gold is just the fact that it is also deadly to... To demigods, because like if you were to try to attack a human with the weapon, it would just go through them. But if you attack a demigod with it, it's just supposed to also do damage. But in this book, they've made it to where it is poisonous as well, like literally poison to a demigod. But they made it to where Imperial Gold, at the very least, is literally poisonous to demigods. And so he's, he's dealing with the poison and the 
the damage that the poison does is kind of to his soul, and that's where he has to, like, will it to be better. That would be fine, again, if it was, like, a massive gash along his chest or his back or something. But in this case, he's been run through. Like, stabbed through the back, and it, like, comes out his front. That would have done some kind of internal organ damage. That would mean that he doesn't survive. But no. For some reason, they decided, nah, he's fine. He, he, he's even able to get up and walk around and do stuff. It's, it's just silly to have one of your main characters literally have been run through at the beginning of the book and he's just fine there's also just a general lack of consequence save for one character um phoebe or phoebe phoebe i think her name's phoebe um one of the huntresses of artemis she gets killed she she straight up dies uh she dies fairly like about halfway through the book and She's the only, like, legacy death that we know of. All the other deaths that happen are just kind of hand-waved away. It's it's really disappointing. Oh, yeah, I meant to... I for, for, yeah, Gaia, right? When Gaia shows up, she shows up, starts sinking the people, um, and then is just grabbed and flown away. And exit on Gaia. There she is, there she goes. Then that's taken care of pretty fast. Uh, when they flash back to Nico on the ground during the same thing like when Gaia first rises and starts sinking people uh it just brushes over that fact it, it doesn't mention the fact that people were sinking into the ground because it's trying to catch up to to like before Octavian launches himself into the air and in doing so uh it just skips the fact that Nico theoretically should have been waist deep in ground and had to have struggled out but it just skips over that yeah overall the series is fine it has some of my favorite moments but overall i have to rank all of those books under the original percy jackson series my f order would probably be house of hades like um from best to worst house of hades son of neptune the lost hero and then the, it's kind of a tie for the bottom for mark of athena and blood of olympus but i'm going to say it goes mark of athena then blood of olympus because mark of athena while a little bit disappointing at least has that pretty fun cliffhanger that was probably super annoying on release this book as it's supposed to be a finale doesn't feel that satisfying as a finale especially since it leaves a lot of plot threads open which is nice that it kind of is able to lead into what ends up being the trials of apollo but still, it it doesn't feel at all satisfying. Like, at the end of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, they go to Olympus and they are rewarded for their victory. In this, they just kind of meander for a bit and then the book ends. Well, and then it goes to my favorite chapter of probably the entire thing. Leo f actually fulfilling his promise, going back to Calypso and getting her off that island after he gets uh, crispied and killed. So his plan was pretty much steal the the physician's cure, load it up into Festus, have Festus transform into a dragon, uh, from boat to dragon, uh, and then when he died, have Festus automatically inject the physician's cure. Ting, job done. <laughs> Overall, a decent plan. Though, funnily enough, no one thinks that that's what happened. No one thinks of that as an option, funnily enough, for some reason. 
like Piper is constantly despairing because she feels that no one was there to administer the cure for him. Like, so he, he's almost certainly like dead, dead. He had the dragon revived. They, they could, he could have fixed it. And there was no evidence of the dragon itself at the crash. They were able to find the ship, but no sign of the dragon or Leo. So they, they could have put one and one together and came up with the dragon probably has a needle in it. <laughs> it would be simple enough. He's done weirder things. He put an entire fucking claw in the ship at some point because he discovered Archimedes spheres and figured claw that works. And it did. It came in handy once. And then it w literally it's just something that appears in the book for a little bit of a chapter and then disappears never to be seen again. One thing that I did kind of enjoy is the fact that um, Jason now has glasses. He he was prescribed glasses by uh, the guy who finished the physician's cure for them, and now he just has glasses. And if you look closely enough on the cover of the book, you can actually see that he is wearing those glasses on the cover of the book. That's uh, it's a fun little detail. It's probably the most accurate book cover of the series, so I'll give it props for that. I will also say, small asterisk, some of my opinions on the book are slightly tainted by me having slightly spoiled some events that happen later on in the series for myself. I'm a dumbass. That's on me. I'll take full responsibility for that. Um, but there are some events that kind of make some of the scenes, especially at the tail end of the book, a bit bittersweet, you know? And it's... It's something that I'll probably I'll talk about more when we actually start getting into like Trials of Apollo and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it when the time comes. Uh, but yeah, so that is that's kind of that. I mean, overall, this series is fine. I do still overall enjoy the fact that you know it, it's this big long thing. It's a multiple books over the course of a year though it will make adaptation a bitch as it is adapting the percy jackson series at the rate that they're doing it is going to be hell <laughs> because as it currently stands they have season one is currently in post-production and they they've been greenlit to start workshopping scripts for season two that does not mean that the series has been picked up for a second season. They're just allowed to start pitching a second season. Now, season two and season three take place during the same year. So season three is going to have to come very shortly after season two. Or at least they're going to have to record it fairly shortly after season two. Unless they decide to merge season books two and three into season two. I wouldn't really advise it, but it's an option. Then season four would be one year after season two because it's the following summer from season two because book three is set in the winter in between and then book five is set a whole year after that then the lost hero the lost hero you have a lot of wiggle room because most of the characters are new save for annabeth and for that that would be, like, 
it's the same situation as um, season three would be because it's the following winter. Then all of the rest of the book takes place eight months later. So then from then on, well, it's not even eight months. It's, it's from June to like August is the rest of the series there. So you'd have to do it really fast. If you're lucky, you'll have cast a bunch of actors that look timeless as time goes on. You know, like how Paul Rudd still looks like he's in his 30s. Yeah. Like how Paul Rudd still looks like he's in his 30s, but he's actually 54. So, you know, you just kind of have to hope that they, they, like as they get older, they'll still look within that age range of about 16, 17 and whatnot. And just at that point, you just kind of have to pray. <laughs> Otherwise, um, you're just going to have classic, um, classic, uh, what you call it? American uh, high school sitcom syndrome, where like a lot of supposedly there's quite a bit of a thing where um, <laughs> people outside of the U.S. think, huh, I guess American kids are just bigger, and that's just because a lot of this issue is that they're casting like 25 year olds to play teenagers most of the time and that causes issues <laughs> but anywho yeah that's that's my opinion on on that overall i am still very excited for the the adaptation that's the only worry i have is that a lot of the time the time frame ends up getting compressed a bit and whatnot but meh with that said, though, I think we are in a pretty good position to call it. I've talked about most of the things I want to do. The only other thing I kind of wanted to mention is I think that while reading these books, I figured Percy Jackson would make a pretty good video game, like a good old RPG, in the right hands. Because, you know, if it's just a crappy tie-in game, it would suck. But, like, a proper RPG would be pretty cool. You could do it with the main characters, or you could do it as, like, an original character situation because of the fact that there are so many, like, demigods that you could set it kind of at any point in the timeline, and it would feel pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> that, that's the only other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, an RPG uh, in the right hands would be a really good game. Uh, but, yeah, with that, I think we are good. So, next week is going to be Sphere. Sphere all the way. Uh, it'll be another situation where I get to record the challenge update in tandem. Because Actually, technically there won't be a challenge update next week. Because I will be talking purely about Sphere and Sphere, the movie. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be both of those things. Um, and, as I said in my uh, YouTube Shorts update, from this point on, Every book that we read going forward, I have not read. So it, that's where the challenge goes up a little bit and being a little bit difficult. But overall, we have hit, we've crossed the threshold and we have read the longest book in the series. That was House of Hades. We read that book. We don't have to worry about books being that long anymore. It's pretty smooth sailing from here on out. After Sphere is going to be the first Cain Chronicles book. And then we start tackling the Trials of Apollo. So it's going to be a good old time. Anywho, uh, with that said though, 
Thank you guys so much for listening. I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.